Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Alexander Platt, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kansas. We'll be discussing his article, Beyond Market Transparency, Investor Disclosure in Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Stanford Law Review. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Alex, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Very happy to be here. Alex, if I'm a CEO or an investor relations director at a company and I want to know who my shareholders are, how can I do that? Can I look them up? Is there some kind of database that I have internally of who all of my shareholders are? Or is there some database that the securities industry keeps that lists my shareholders, their names, addresses, how many shares they hold, all that good information? How can I find that information? Companies are required to maintain a list of record holders. But over time, these lists have become less and less useful as a way for companies to actually identify these shareholders. And that's because now, the vast majority of shareholders hold their shares in what's called street name through various intermediaries. Bottom line meaning, companies are not able to use those lists to directly identify their real investors. That change has forced companies to look elsewhere for information about who their shareholders are. And 13F, that is Exchange Act Section 13F, has emerged as a leading substitute. So it sounds like 13F is a opportunity for companies, for the CEO, for the VP of investor relations to get some sense of who some of the company's shareholders are or investors are. Could you talk a little bit about the basic structure of 13F? How does that disclosure work? Some of the history of 13F? And is there any maybe recent history or any recent controversy around 13F? So adapted in the 1970s, 13F requires institutional investors to tell us every quarter what stocks they own. Two important limits on the scope of this disclosure regime. Number one, it applies only to institutional investment managers. That is, it does not require disclosures from individual shareholders. And second, it only applies over a certain threshold. So if you're a smaller institutional investment manager, you aren't subject to these disclosures. It only kicks in at a certain dollar threshold. By today's standards, that information seems pretty basic, maybe downright primitive, and it's easy to see how it might fade into the background, come to be taken for granted over time. And that's really what's happened. So although we have countless studies every year in law and finance that use 13F disclosures, none of those studies really has turned around the microscope to examine that program itself or think through what its impacts on corporate governance are. And although the relationship between institutional investors and corporations has never been more important, the scholarship focusing on that relationship has really ignored 13F. Ignoring 13F is no longer possible. As you mentioned, in 2020, the SEC proposed eliminating it. That is, they proposed doing away with those disclosures that uh, for most reporting institutional investors. And today, there are proposals to do the opposite, to expand the scope and frequency of disclosures. I think no responsible reform can be undertaken in either direction without a better grasp 
of the real impacts of this program. If I'm a CEO, a VP of investor relations, I have access to some of the identities of the major holders of my shares. The big contribution of your paper is that you identify 20 ways that 13F helps shape corporate governance processes and procedures, helps shape the actions of that CEO or the VP of investor relations. Can you maybe walk us through what those mechanisms are and what some of the intuitions behind them are? 20 sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But the remarkable thing is, as I've been workshopping this paper and presenting it around, I realized it's actually under-inclusive of all the ways 13F is impacting corporate governance. But let me just highlight a few of the key findings from the paper here. The first topic is hedge fund activism. And here I find or I show that 13F is aligning the incentives of hedge fund activists with those of longer term investors. So as background, that term hedge fund activist, what does that mean? It refers to a subset of hedge funds who are seeking to make their returns, not by picking winners, not by picking stocks that they think are going to outperform, but rather by investing in companies and leveraging their ownership stakes to actually change the companies in some way in the hopes of increasing value. Very controversial. Some critics say that the activists have shorter term investment horizons than other investors and therefore any changes they produce are going to produce only short-term increases in value coming at the expense of longer-term shareholders and other corporate stakeholders. Legal scholars have conjectured that this short-termism problem might be mitigated by the fact that activists only acquire 5 to 10% in a typical intervention, and therefore they depend on winning support from other shareholders to get their changes implemented. We now have some evidence that this is actually true. So using 13F data, there's a recent paper showing that the long-term returns, that is the five-year returns of hedge fund activism are better when the activist is selecting the target based on its pre-existing shareholder composition. Cut to the chase. I interpret this paper as providing strong evidence of two things. Number one, 13F is making it easier for hedge funds to pick targets based on the identity of their shareholders. And two, when activists use that strategy as opposed to some other strategy that they could use, the campaign is going to lead to better long-term results for longer-term investors. So I say 13F is aligning activism with long-term value. That's a good thing, right? So you might hate hedge fund activists or you might love them, but in either case, you should be happy to hear that this regulatory disclosure regime seems to be nudging the activists towards interventions that create longer-term value. There's a lot more to say about that topic, but I'll leave it there and turn to a kind of more mixed finding in the paper, and that comes in the area of shareholder proposals. Most of the shareholder proposals are not close. That is, most fail by a pretty wide margin, but some of them are closely contested. And if you look at that subset of shareholder proposals that come down to the wire, research has shown us that management always seems to win those close ones. That is, in the subset of shareholder proposals that are tightly contested, managers seem to be strangely adept at reaching out over that 50% line and grabbing victories away from shareholders. I think that 13F is playing an important role here. Management has ways of seeing the vote tally as it's coming in. When they see a close election coming, what do they do? They use 13F to identify which of their shareholders are out there. 
and pick up the phone and start lobbying those shareholders to vote in their favor. That's a theory. That's a conjecture. But now there's actually some evidence this is true. In 2020, following the SEC's proposal to dramatically curtail 13F, a bunch of comment letters came in from issuers and their allies. And some of them confirmed that they used 13F precisely for this purpose. So let me quote from a comment letter from the National Association of Manufacturers, which is an important group that represents the interests of many corporations. They implored the SEC, don't get rid of 13F because we need it to, quote, help investors understand management's perspectives ahead of contentious proxy ballot questions. And there's more evidence to this effect that I go through in the paper. Bottom line, 13F seems to be subsidizing managerial lobbying and managerial victories in closely contested shareholder proposals. For those who like shareholder proposals, this obviously seems like more of a sinister, dark effect than the prior one. But the next finding I'll discuss is arguably even worse. So here I'm going to talk about how 13F may be facilitating the anti-competitive effects of common ownership. In case you're not familiar with this literature, let me give you a quick overview. Suppose you own 100% of Delta Airlines. First of all, congratulations. That's a Thank nice you. accomplishment Thank for you. you. Yeah. So what would you do? You'd want Delta to go out there and compete vigorously against American. Every sale you steal from American is more money in your pocket. By contrast, Andrew, if you own both Delta and American, you're not going to do that. Any sale that you steal from American that goes to Delta is just shifting money from one pocket to the other with a bunch falling on the floor. So you're not going to compete against a business that you also own. There's theory and evidence now that this anti-competitive effect holds even where the level of common ownership across competitors is less than 100% and even when it's less than a controlling share of the company. That is, the theory is as the level of common ownership goes up, the level of competition goes down. Okay, there's no shortage of pushback and criticism of this research and questions about the empirics. I'm not here to talk about that. What I'm here to talk about instead is a legal criticism that has been raised against this theory, which is that there's no causal mechanism by which the common owners are transmitting their incentives to the companies that they own. The CEO of Vanguard is not picking up the phone to call Delta to say reduce flights from you know Minneapolis to Los Angeles or something like that. So that's the criticism. Einar L. Haig at Harvard has offered 13F as a possible causal mechanism here. He's explained, we don't need that CEO to make that call. All that is needed is for the company, Delta Airlines, perhaps, to take a look at 13F and see which of its owners are also owners of its competitors. And perhaps that is all that is needed to make the anti-competitive effect real. Now we have some evidence that this theory is actually correct. And again, the evidence comes from comment letters filed by issuers in the wake of the SEC's 2020 13F proposal. For example, the National Association of Manufacturers wrote in their comment letter, don't get rid of 13F. Why? Because we need it, our issuers need it, to understand shareholders' portfolios, I'm quoting, portfolios beyond their investment in a given business, including their, quote, exposure to a certain industry. So if you're an antitrust person, that might set off alarm bells for you. That's a, a great sampling of some of the, the 20 factors or effects that you find with 13F and corporate governance. And I would encourage listeners to 
download the paper and explore some of the other items that Alex has identified. This, I think, all points to an argument that you make in the paper that 13F is not a neutral transparency device. It has some impact. And I wonder if you can maybe give an assessment there. Is 13F a good thing for investors? Is it a good thing for issuers, for the capital markets, for society? Or are there some maybe nuances there on the impacts of 13F? Definitely nuances. So last summer, two summers ago now, when the SEC made this proposal, Commissioner Allison Heron Lee kicked off the opposition to the effort with a statement condemning it as an assault on market transparency. Her statement on this proposal used that phrase market transparency about seven or eight times. And the corporate governance universe picked up on that theme. This is a bad rule. Why? Because it would be bad for market transparency. I just think this is a bad basis for policymaking. We have to look back. When you see someone, whether it's an industry player, a commissioner, an academic, justifying a securities rule on the grounds of transparency, I really think the next question has to be, who's going to use that information and what are they going to do with it? We have to look past transparency itself to see what the actual impacts are going to be on things we care about. So in this case, I think more work needs to be done to figure out who's using the information produced by 13F and whether it's beneficial or harmful. And as I've just surveyed in the findings I I just talked about, there's a mix. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what regulators should be keeping in mind when they're thinking about reforms around 13F as seems to be in the air today. My impression as I was going through these 20 items that you identify is that any kind of reform around 13F is going to be a little bit like playing the game Jenga, where if you pull one block out, you might destabilize another part of the superstructure. Can you maybe talk a little bit about some of those risks or things to keep in mind as scholars or as regulators or folks in industry might call for changes around 13F? Andrew, you make it sound so hopeless. It's true. We're never going to have perfect information about the effects of rule change before it happens. That's true probably in, in most areas, especially true maybe in financial regulation, securities regulation, where You got these very highly incentivized actors out there who will invent new systems, new practices in response to whatever a regulator does. So that's true. But I think we can do better than we are doing now to understand the consequences. Consider, if you will, 13F's neighbor in the Exchange Act, 13D. We have a massive amount of empirical research, legal analysis focusing on this provision. Is every issue resolved on 13D? No, certainly not. But at least we understand pretty well the trade-offs involved in any policy change, which can help policymakers make informed judgments and also make them be accountable to citizens and to the public when they make a choice favoring one side of a trade-off or the other. We're not there yet on 13F. If we can bring research on 13F up to where we are on 13D, I think at least the policymakers will be in a position to make more informed and accountable decisions. All right. So that's a call for the scholars out there that we've got this rich area, 13F, that requires more study. So for accounting and finance and and corporate scholars out there, consider that call. Alex, are there any key takeaways or open questions you would like listeners to be left with from this interview and and from the paper? Corporate law scholars have been criticized 
as too easily accepting the results of governance processes as neutral, as reflections of what the market thinks, as proof of what is efficient. This paper gives us another reason to worry about such conclusions if we needed one. The paper kind of shows that this dusty old provision 13F seems to be systematically skewing the playing field, tilting the playing field in favor of one side or the other in some of these governance processes. We can look at the results of shareholder elections or activists. We can look at the results of these things and they may or may not be efficient, but the fact that they're produced by these processes doesn't really tell us one way or the other because many contingent forces, including 13F, seem to be skewing the results. So we have to be a little more cautious about drawing inferences from the mere fact that they are outcomes. Our guest today has been Alexander Platt, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kansas. We've discussed his article, Beyond Market Transparency, Investor Disclosure and Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Stanford Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Alex, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.